prayed for. We thank you for the change in seasons. We thank you what that means to us, both living here in the Northeast, but also what it means to us spiritually. Some here are coming out of difficult seasons, and you're transitioning them into a, a different season. Lord, we thank you that no matter what season we're in in our lives, we know that you never change. Not only that, but we know that you are with us every step of the way. We know that you are growing each of us, changing each of us, making us more into the image of, of you. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that you do not leave us where you find us, but that you're constantly deepening our faith, stretching us beyond our comfort zone so that we may place more and more reliance upon you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to take you on a short uh, trip back in time with this opening slide here. Does anybody know what this is? Does this look familiar to anybody? This is the difference between several frustrating hours and being able to lord your skill over everyone else. That's what this is right here. If you remember from the early to mid-90s craze, Magic Eye was a collection of computer-generated images where if you looked at it long enough and you unfocused your eyes, a 3D image would pop out of the seemingly 2D image. I was never able to see these things as a kid. It frustrated me to no end. I was only when I got older that I was able to do what was necessary to be able to see it. Finally clicked. I just don't think I got the concept when I was only seven. I don't know many seven-year-olds who would. Uh, can anyone see what's supposed to be popping out of this picture? Three, two, one. All right, time's up. It was a picture of the planet Saturn. That's what that was. If one didn't know how to look at that image or hadn't obsessively practiced it during the 90s, you'd have no clue that there was a hidden image within that image, would you? No clue. You just saw a bunch of stars there. And even if somebody told you, like I just did, that there was Saturn within this image, it may still never be revealed to you. In fact, according to an article that I read, some people have eye issues that prevent them from ever seeing the hidden image in a magic eye uh, image. Similarly, there is hidden knowledge and wisdom that only belongs to God. As Paul will describe in our passage this morning, there is wisdom that God has chosen to reveal to humankind in Jesus, especially when it comes to our salvation. But as Paul will write later on in this chapter, God's hidden wisdom is only revealed through his Holy Spirit. So to the unopened eyes of the world, it's foolishness and nonsensical. This morning we'll talk about the wisdom of God that was hidden by God, and next week we'll talk about the wisdom of God that was revealed by God through his Holy Spirit. It's all about the hidden wisdom today. So the first point that we come to as we work through our passage this morning is human wisdom. We, can, we get this. This is the wisdom that we understand the best uh, because we're, we're human. We're, we're continuing on in 1 Corinthians. Uh, so if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn there. It's in the New Testament. And if you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's perfectly fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to 1 Corinthians. If you're having trouble finding it, ask a neighbor or look it up in the table of contents. There's nothing, there's nothing to be ashamed of there. Uh, we're continuing on in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. I want all of us to see this together. And we start in verse 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away. 
As pointed out by one biblical scholar, who Paul means here by the mature are those in the Corinthian church who do understand the wisdom of God versus the foolishness of the world. Not everyone in the Corinthian church were arrogantly selfish, but they were a minority, those who did understand the things of God. Paul, Paul is juxtaposing what he described about himself in the preceding verses, which we covered last week, with what he introduces here. Even though Paul describes his own human weakness and apparent ignorance when it came to human wisdom, he doesn't want the Corinthian church to misunderstand that God does not place no emphasis on wisdom. The difference is that the emphasis is on an understanding of the wisdom of God, not, the, not chasing after human wisdom, which will only end in emptiness and superficiality, which we talked about a few weeks back. As noted by one biblical scholar, many philosophers would call those who had progressed in their pursuit of wisdom mature, and Paul is obviously using that same illustration here, but also making a clear distinction. Believers in Jesus Christ are not mature by their pursuit of human wisdom, but of the wisdom entrusted to them by Almighty God. That's the distinction. According to verse 6, this wisdom wasn't to come through the fruition of philosophy from the, ancient, from the classical Greeks, nor even the expansion of philosophy, literature, and the arts from the Pax Romana. That's huge that Paul is, is, is making that distinction here. The time period of the Pax Romana, if you know anything about Western history, started in 27 BC by none other of Christmas story fame, Caesar Augustus. When the last rebellion for a couple hundred years was put down and an age of earthly peace endured. This is considered by most historians to be the golden age of the Roman Empire when classical philosophy and art could flourish. But even as Paul is writing in the middle of this golden age of Rome, he flat out declares that not even the consummation of all the philosophy and art of Greece and Rome led to the wisdom that he's talking about here. Not even any of that. That even falls short. The most brilliant minds of that age still could not comprehend this certain wisdom. Likewise, even the most powerful rulers of that age, all the Roman emperors that had reigned or ever would reign, would never understand this wisdom if approached from human means. In our, past, in our message on 1 Corinthians, by looking at internal and external evidence, we propose that this letter was most likely written in the early to mid-spring of 55 AD. Emperor Nero had begun his reign at the age of 16 the year before, in 54 AD. The title that Nero had adopted for himself at the start of his emperorship was none other than this. Emperor Nero, ruler of rulers. And it goes on from there. Ironically, Paul references in verse 6, not even the so-called ruler of rulers could understand this wisdom. As we'll see today, we can even extend that to our time period in history. Not even the most brilliant minds of our age, the philosophers, the scientists, and the professors can understand this wisdom through human convention. It will also be outside of their grasp. In fact, as we've already discussed, the end conclusion of the most brilliant minds in the world is usually atheism. It's usually that. That, will all, what, that doesn't prove anything. What that proves is that will always be the end result of human-based wisdom. 
And the ultimate end result of the extent of human-based wisdom, as Paul notes here in verse 6, is what? It'll pass away. That's all that will happen to it. It will just simply pass away. Since it's of the world, no matter what time period it's from, or who discovered it, it will all pass away. The writers of the greatest authors, historians, poets, scientists, journalists, and philosophers that have ever lived will all pass away. We will have no need of them in the age to come. So to have someone say, get up in your face, and say, believing in Jesus is stupid because the most brilliant minds in the world don't even believe he exists, if they say that to you, that doesn't even prove anything. It merely affirms what the Apostle Paul wrote here in 1 Corinthians 2,000 years ago. That's what it affirms. Even the most brilliant human minds cannot reason, discover, or prove God's wisdom through human means. Like we've been talking about the past few weeks, it was designed to be that way. It wasn't by any accident. It was designed to be that way. So if the most brilliant, reasonable, artistic, and powerful people cannot grasp this wisdom, what is, what is the wisdom that Paul is talking about? That's what brings us to our second point here. He's talking about God's wisdom. That's what he's talking about. He's mentioned it before, and he's mentioning it again here in verse 7. Read along with me. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. We speak God's wisdom. Human wisdom will ultimately pass away, but God's wisdom will always endure. Now we read here that this is hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages for our glory. Now what does that tell us? That tells us a few things. Firstly, this wisdom originated and is therefore outside of human initiation. It's even outside of time restraints and cultural influences. It was predetermined or predestined to be outside of human understanding. At the same time, even though it originated outside of the creation of humankind or the, or the creation of human perception of time or historical or cultural influences, it was designed to subject all of these things to its influence. Even though it was outside of it, it was designed to subject all of these things under it. See, it wasn't just some disconnected, out there concept that was outside of all of these things and therefore had nothing to do with any of these things. It was untouchable and uninfluenced and unadulterated by humanity, but it itself touched all of humanity. It literally is what human history was headed towards ever since the first two humans were created. All of human history was crafted and guided to lead up to a certain point. In Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, he wrote, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The word used there for fullness means fulfillment, completion, the sum total. At the sum total of time and everything that had happened in it, since history was measured by time markers, God revealed this wisdom. 
The Apostle John describes this wisdom in John chapter 1 as becoming embodied and incarnated into a person, a person named Jesus. Think about it. Before the first man and woman were created, God had already determined this wisdom. He knew and had predetermined that mankind would fall to the sin of self-seeking pride. You might think, well, that didn't seem very wise. Didn't this seemingly all-knowing and all-wise God know all of the torment, excruciating pain, and death that would occur from all of this? Well, here's the thing. God did not create humanity to be programmed robots that simply followed every command without thinking. Why? Because then he would have a race of non-thinking slaves. He created humankind to be his children, created in his image. As any parent or grandparent will attest, you don't want your children to love you out of compulsion, right? You want them to love you because they actually love you. That's part of our God-given understanding in being made in God's image. And because the creation cannot be the creator, the creation was created to be non-perfect. It was very good, as Genesis tells us, but not perfect. We're told in Genesis that humans were created to be like God, but obviously not be God. Therefore, humans created as the creator's children had the capacity to not love their creator. They're created with that capacity. Before they sinned, they did not know that there was an evil because they had not eaten from that tree yet. But what they did have was whether or not to obey their father's one command out of love. Of course, as we read here in verse 7, God had already predetermined that they would disobey him and therefore open themselves up to a whole world of evil requiring the fulfillment of his revelation of wisdom. We already talked a little bit about the why as much as is humanly understood, but the rest of that part is, is what we will discuss in a little bit, the hidden wisdom of God. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, we know that God does not delight in sin. He didn't delight in these things were going to happen. But for reasons known only to him, he ordained that sin would enter the world through the actions of his creation. The predetermined wisdom then from the get-go guided human history up to the total sum of revelation. Think about what we know about human history. Sin and evil quickly got out of control and God carried out his will by purging the earth of the doers of evil except for one family. The descendants of that family, again, quickly forgot about obeying God, decided to build a pagan ziggurat to spit in his face and declare their independence from him. Once again, God intervened in human history, sent forth the origins of the world's different languages, and forced humankind to spread out over, once again, the newly inhabited earth. From that point forward, the earth was all about disunity. Different city-states and nations emerged from the original different languages, and they all fought against each other to conquer each other and to get more land. Very quickly in human history, soon there was a point where no one on earth, no one on earth worshipped God as the one true God. So much for the fulfillment of his wisdom, huh? 
No one even believed he existed at one point. At that point, God intervened once again and handpicked a thoroughly pagan moon worshiper named Abram to call to faith in him. God established a covenant with Abram that a nation would be reserved for faith in God. The purpose of that nation would be a light among the other nations to declare the prophecies and predetermined wisdom to this disunified world. That nation emerged only through God's miraculous provision of a son for Abraham and Sarah in their old age, and the bloodline was spared by God's protection over Jacob from both his father-in-law and his own brother. That bloodline continued, and the list of descendants grew and grew until that nation was threatened to be forever slaves in a foreign kingdom. So much for that predetermined wisdom again. But yet, again, God broke into human history. God called another, for all intents and purposes, pagan man raised in the Egyptian polyistic religion, whose life was spared over and over again, beginning with his birth, a man named Moses, to lead that nation out of captivity and to the outskirts of the promised land. God protected that nation over and over again through one military conquest after another until that nation was settled in the land that God had promised all the way back to that guy named Abraham. However, that nation would fail in keeping God's commandments time and time again until they looked like every other pagan nation on the earth and the complete opposite of God's purpose for them being the light of his representation to the rest of the earth. Even in God disciplining his people, he still protected at least part of that nation's identity even through exile in another pagan people group's land. Through God's guidance, once again, a pagan king named Cyrus decreed that God's people be allowed to return to their homeland. God reestablishes his people in their homeland with a temple to declare faith in him to the rest of the world. And throughout this entire time of thousands of years, small revelations of God's predetermined wisdom are given by the prophets and preserved in writing. The light of, the, of faith in God is dim but still flickering, and that closes the Old Testament. Here's where things start heating up to this fullness of time. During the next 400 years, another world conqueror would emerge, a man named Alexander the Great, whose military strategy was summed up in the term Hellenization. Hellenization meant that whatever land Alexander the Great conquered, he forced those inhabitants to learn Greek culture and, more importantly, Greek language. Remember all the way back to Genesis, where the disunifying of the world began by way of the creation of the different languages of the earth. Here is where the unifying of the world begins, with most of the ancient world at least having some familiarity with the one Greek language. One of these conquered lands was the land of Palestine. After the death of Alexander the Great, his empire was divided among his generals. One of these new rulers, named Antiochus Epiphanes IV, thinking himself a manifestation of the Greek god Zeus, desecrated the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, sparking a Jewish revolt that threatened to wipe out the Jewish people once again. A successful military revolt by the Jewish Maccabees drove the Greeks out of Jerusalem, and the Jewish people once again restored the temple of God. That event is celebrated by many around the world today as Hanukkah. Not too long after that, the Romans marched into town, 
conquered the land of God's people. Not only were the Romans successful military conquerors, but they were also adept at construction. The Romans constructed a series of roads and trade routes all throughout their empire, which around 27 BC included most of the ancient Western world. So now, in human history, the people from which the prophesied Messiah would come have continually been preserved and now have an all-time high of looking for their Messiah. And the ancient Western world, while originally disunified, has now become unified through one imperial government, government with one imperial currency and a system of roads and trade routes that would be very convenient for, say, people bearing the gospel message to walk on and to travel by. Not only that, but this one imperial government has already established this Pax Romana, this worldwide peace, that a certain message of salvation in Jesus could be easily passed from one land to another. The completion or total sum of time truly had come for God himself to enter the world as the human revelation of the predetermined wisdom of God. But as I hope you've seen, contrary to what many critical of the, of the Bible historians have to say, this was no accident. This wasn't an accidental, perfect scenario for the gospel to spread like wildfire that just favored Christianity as it simply was at the right place at the right time. As we've seen, the predetermined wisdom of God guided human history to that point. And all of this was, as verse 7 says, for our glory as humans. Even though we gave up bringing God glory by turning our backs on Him, God Himself restored it back to us by calling us to faith in Jesus to once again bring God glory. That was always our purpose as human beings, and that is our purpose as children restored to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. While we still sin, while still here on earth, God is slowly changing us into the likeness of Jesus. And one day, we will fully be able to realize and live out our ultimate purpose and bring God glory every day for all of eternity. But as Paul says in our passage this morning, it all started somewhere. And it all started with the wisdom of God predetermining it before the creation of the universe. And because it is the wisdom of God, it was determined to be revealed in a certain way. As we've already talked about, it was not revealed in a humanly discovered way or stumbled upon in a trance or realized during a long time of fasting. If it could be discovered in a human way, then this wouldn't have happened. Verse 8. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If it could be discovered in a human way, then the predetermined full revelation of it would be rendered completely unnecessary. If humanity had discovered the wisdom of God on their own, then one, it's obviously not the wisdom of God, or God thinks the way a human does, and if that's the case, we're all hopeless, and two, we would not realize we're sinners and would still be lost in our sins. But Paul says in verse 7, God's wisdom was revealed in a mystery. So we talked about human wisdom, we talked about God's wisdom, and next we're going to talk about the one... The first one we understand completely. The second one is revealed to us by God. And the third one we will never understand. 
The word translated mystery in the English does not capture the original intent of the word used here. It sort of does, but it leaves out the most important part. The word translated as mystery actually comes from the root word meaning to initiate, to instruct, or to learn a lesson. So what does that mean in connection to what we're talking about? It fits right in line with everything Paul has said up to this point, in that humans cannot come to know this wisdom on their own. It must be initiated by God, and he must be the one to instruct and teach us what this wisdom is. We'll talk more about how he instructs and teaches us what this wisdom is next week. Those who had a hand in crucifying Jesus were both Jewish and Gentile, but they were both completely unaware they were actually bringing about the revelation of God's wisdom. The wisdom they had no clue about. It was kept hidden until the revelation of Jesus started revealing uh, to, to who he wanted. In fact, we read this explanation between Jesus and his disciples. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Only to whom God has already predetermined to give faith will God reveal his hidden wisdom. Again, one cannot stumble upon it. It must be instructed to them by God, and for that to happen, it must be initiated by God, and for that to happen, the person must have been chosen by God. While that seems unfair to us as humans, we are still thinking about it in a human way. Addressing this very same concern, Paul says, So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some, and he chooses to harden the hearts of others, so they refuse to listen. Well, then you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? Makes sense in human wisdom, right? No, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into? Those are some pretty strong words, aren't they? We're going to have to chew on those a little bit, I think, right? When we go home today. Those are some hard words for us as humans to hear because it goes completely counter to what we want. But God's wisdom is God's wisdom no matter what we think about it. It may seem like Paul sidesteps the question, but that's his point. There are just some things we're not meant to know. That's what brings us to the hidden things of God, that hidden wisdom of God. As we read here, we only know the things of God that he has chosen to initiate and instruct us about. There is much, much else that is part of God's will in our lives that we may perhaps never understand and we were never made to understand. You wouldn't even try to describe the solar system to an ant, would you? If you tried to, you'd be very frustrated. 
Even if you did, even if you got down on your hands and knees and started shouting these things at an ant, you would know they were created to, to not coming anywhere close to actually comprehending what you're saying. There are things that happen in our lives that are excruciatingly painful. And we are at a complete loss as to God's reasoning behind all of it. Similar to what Paul says in Romans 9, some things we will never understand. And we must simply trust God with knowing that there's a reason for it in, according to, to, in accordance to God's predetermined plan. But knowing that his reason may be even so far out of our comprehension that even if he did reveal it to us, even if he did try to describe it to us, there's still no way we'd get it. In those times, when there is just no answer for something, all we can do is throw ourselves completely on Him, crying out to Him, and receiving the peace from God that again surpasses all human comprehension of knowing that God has His reasons, and that's it. God has His reasons, and that's it. If we ever know those reasons, great. And if not, we have the peace of knowing who does. It's God's wisdom according to his plan, and he chooses what he initiates and instructs about it, and he chooses what he doesn't initiate and instruct about it. But this is what we do know, verse 9. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, this is a reference to the prophet Isaiah, which talks about, again, God intervening on behalf of his people in real human history. What the world holds as intelligent or worthwhile will all pass away someday. But this is what we have and what we have to look forward to, all based on God's wisdom and God's plan that he determined before he even created the universe. Verse 9 again, But just as it is written, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love Him. We can't even imagine all that God has prepared for us. Since it's God's initiated revelation of His wisdom that saves us, that we simply could not understand unless He revealed it to us, there are rewards in having that personal restored relationship with God through Jesus, both here and now, as well as for all of eternity, that, the, that those who God has chosen to not reveal himself to can never imagine. And we can't even imagine them either. There's a certain peace in simply entrusting ourselves to these words, isn't there? There's a certain peace that comes with that. I want to close our time with words that confirm this, which Paul also writes to the Roman church. And he says, Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible, impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? 
Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is attended, intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these deep, difficult, and powerful words. We thank you that there is hidden wisdom that you have revealed to us in revealing to us yourself, the Savior and King of all mankind. We thank you that you have chosen to restore us to yourself through the blood that you shed upon the cross. But Lord, we also thank you that there is much, much else that we couldn't even begin to understand about you, about your decisions, about your reasons for different things, about the ways that you go about doing things. We're not meant to know. We weren't created to know. And Lord, thank you for the peace that you give to us when we just simply entrust those things to you. We thank you that you are our good and perfect Father, and that's all we need. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.